got a few more days of heat, it looks like, and then we have June to look forward to. <laughs> I could easily be a bear and uh, fatten up, go to sleep, <laughs> wake up when it's just nice. So, all right. Well, um, as you know, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've covered um, a number of weighty issues uh, that, uh, from the mouth of our Lord, his instruction regarding you know, uh, sinning believers and how we as his people are to uh, address it and work with it and, and sometimes do very difficult things with it. Uh, just very heavy stuff, and uh, maybe that accounts for to us. I, I give it as it was given. It's good for us. Today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of forgiveness. I know that this is a difficult subject for a number of people. Hurt, physically, continue to be hurt. And so uh, this discussion is uh, difficult for them, and, but by it, there's, it doesn't diminish what has happened. I'm not, Jesus will not minimize what has happened of all people that know suffering, rejection. So this final section in Matthew 18, it begin with an appropriate question from Peter that will, Jesus will then give an answer, and then he will uh, clarify his answer with illustration. He'll come to a very blunt conclusion. So let's, let's look at it, all right? If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 18, 21. So following all this discussion about a brother sinning against us and all the course of action we must take, Jesus concludes his discussion. And then Peter came to verse 21 and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he'd begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay his master, that he be sold with his wife and children and all he had, and the payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down before saying, Master, have patience and I will pay. And the master of that servant was moved compassion, released him and forgave him. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience, and I will pay you all. He would not. He went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what he had done, they were very grieved. He came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was so my heavenly father also to you, if each of your heart does not for his brother. Father, we always thank you and filled difficult saying. And depending on our circumstances, sometimes. But Lord, it doesn't change the fact the scribe is right. It's best for us. It's glorifying. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us. You'd minister. We go through when it comes to forgiveness and unforgiveness matter. So help us. Amen. Right, go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, let's, let's look at it. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him seven times. As I said, I, I believe that Peter's question is appropriate even if there's a hint of him trying to impress Jesus once again. 
right? He was known for that. You remember in verse 15, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, he says, go tell him his fault and, and do what you can according to my instruction, restore him through repentance. If he will not repent, he must be excluded in the fellowship. But what Jesus' instruction did not include is what to do if someone repents after a time of being excluded from the church. Well, then what? So Peter comes and asks this question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He says, shall I forgive him, you know, seven times? Well, it was actually, you know, it was big of Peter because the rabbis of Israel, according to their traditions and stuff, taught that you should forgive your brother three times. But if he sinned against you a fourth time, then withhold forgiveness. And you remember Jesus had said, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, which is kind of a fun way of saying that the scribes and Pharisees aren't going to heaven, okay? But when Peter offered up seven times as the number of times he should forgive his brother, he was indeed exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he thought, well, this Jesus, he's got to appreciate this. He says, would that be enough? Well, would it? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. What's the answer? No. (laughs) Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, what that equals, I think you understand, is really not the point. Jesus wasn't hoping that Peter would do the math and then start a ledger. That's not the point, okay? He wants us to forget about how many times we forgive our brother or our sister. Jesus requires that we just keep on forgiving. Love, after all, keeps no record of wrong, right? And we're called to love our neighbor, and our neighbor includes just not that one neighbor, right? Just keep forgiving. The other thing that is important is what Jesus did not say in response to Peter's question. He did not say, how many times should you forgive your brother? Well, it depends, Peter. What did Andrew do this time? There's no discussion about the nature or the degree of sin committed against Peter. There's no discussion about who sinned against Peter. This is common in the scriptures. It's, it's that, that silence is there for a reason. It, it's omitted from Jesus' answer because it does not matter what the sin was or how bad it was or who it was or how often that it was. If he gave a little bit of a, uh, examples, uh, we, would, we would just limit it to that and then say, well, we don't have to do it here or there because not say it. Well, Jesus doesn't say any of it so that we would all have the insecurity <laughs> of not forgiving in any contact. We're tempted really to read Jesus' response to Peter and say, and go on, what else? There's no what else. There's only an illustration that reinforces Jesus' point but it does not matter what the sin was or how bad it was. So let's look at this illustration. It is quite simple. There are some things to interpret in it, but I think that you get the gist. I think the currency uh, is the real matter in trying to figure out what the currency was then as how it would be exchanged today. That's the real big thing so that you can understand what's going on. So Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, that's a very important statement, like a certain king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. So this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So by way of illustration, this is how the issue of forgiveness works in the kingdom of God. And so if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, 
this is for you. This is how you do things. That's what that means. So the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts. It was time to see who owed him what, and it was time for them to pay up among his servants. Now, servants of a king could be slaves, or they could be even his highest officials. Now, kings aren't in the business of loaning money to slaves, so this is an official in his court, some, some kind of official, a trusted official, especially with the amounts of money that we're talking here. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, it, it's rather impossible to know uh, exactly what this amount would be today, but it's understood to be in the millions, and some have estimated a billion. So just for some perspective, you know, the Romans... They taxed the life out of, you know, foreign vassal states that were under their thumb, and Israel was one of them. And the annual Roman imperial tax that was imposed on the entire region of Judea was only 600 talents, and this servant 10,000 talents. This is a massive amount of money. It's so great that this man could not come close to paying it off in a lifetime. It's just insurmountable. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. Payment be made. So knowing that he would never get paid in full, the king says, well, we're going to sell you and all that you have and I'm going to get something out of you. It seems pretty harsh. It's way better than the mafia. Okay. Now in Israel, slaves had rights, a lot of them. And uh, in fact, at the Jubilee, they would just be set free, depending on how close the Jubilee was. <laughs> Hopefully not at the beginning of that long period. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. No, you won't. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So the king responds in pity, this display of contrition and Earnest was just, as the Greek word there is to have compassion, it was gut-wrenching. He was moved by all of this, and so he forgave all the debt. I mean, think about the relief here for the servant. He went from owing millions of dollars, if not a billion, to almost being sold into slavery and having nothing, to instantly being debt-free, everything that he had, including he could not express their gratitude or appreciation love for the one that forgave them for so, you know, so much debt and spared them from so much heartache and difficulty and humiliation. It would have been the most frightening and exhilarating moment in somebody's life, right? Talk about a roller coaster of an afternoon. And you would think that this would change someone's appreciation for life, their family, their material goods, their everything. You would think. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So the servant had just been forgiven the 10,000 talents. He found his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii and took him by the throat, demanding payment. Now, to be honest, what was owed this servant wasn't altogether insignificant. 100 denarii was worth 100 days' wages for the common laborer. Okay? But it's nothing compared to 10,000 talents, 10, oh, I'm sorry, 100 denarii is one six hundred thousandth of 10,000 talents. 600 denarii makes one 
talent. So 100 denarii is pocket change compared to what was forgiven for a servant. So his fellow servant, I feel like we've been here before, fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Now minus the word master, this is exactly what the first servant said to the king. Have patience with me and I'll pay you all. How does the first servant respond to his fellow who is pleading with him? He would not, but went and threw him into prison, that is the debtor's prison, till he should pay the debt. Now, you would think that the first servant, still filled with appreciation for all that was forgiven, and by his fellow servant pleading with him in the exact same manner that he had pleaded earlier with the king, that he would have mustered up a measure of pity. You would think that he would be inspired by the king to at least be patient with his fellow servant to pay him back, and he could pay him back. But instead, he immediately turns him over to the debtor's prison to do forced labor until the debt was paid. Now, we might expect that kind of behavior from that servant if he was under pressure to pay the king, but there was no pressure. He was simply void of compassion. And so he delivered him over to the debtor's prison. And I'm afraid that some among us who have been forgiven much commit our brothers and sisters to the debtor's prison, as it were, instead of extending the same compassion that our God has extended to us. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. So apparently some of these servants, they had witnessed the pity of the king shown to the first servant, all that was forgiven. But even if they hadn't, it still seemed extreme for the first servant to treat his fellow with such severity. So they report things to the king. They're so grieved. And his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on? So you see, the, the unforgiving servant, he is, he is considered wicked. He's not just considered to be lacking compassion. He's, why? Because great mercy was granted to him while he was unwilling to extend even a fraction of what was granted. Neither deserved pity, but when the unworthy are shown great mercy, that mercy should be extended to others like themselves. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Real quick, uh, some translations say jailer. Uh, That is not an accurate representation. I believe the ESV says jailer. NIV says jailer to be tortured. No, it's a a torturer, what the text, the Greek says. The king was furious. He had forgiven insurmountable debt for someone who was not simply unforgiving and unmerciful, unmerciful and impatient. He was cruel and vindictive. He was absolutely wicked. And so the king refused to forgive the debt of someone who refuse to forgive their debtors. Have we heard that before? And now, because of what has come about, it was no longer appropriate to just sell him and all he had to recover some of the money. As king and judge, he had to exact what was right. So he turned the wicked servant over to be tortured until the debt was settled. Working off debt was not enough. Justice, at this point, called for more. So there we have Jesus' illustration to clarify his answer to Peter. And now for his conclusion. So my Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. 
He said that to Peter and the boys. That's something. The, the illustration explains how God deals with everyone who has experienced his great forgiveness, but will not extend a lesser forgiveness to others. They will be turned over to be tormented. Obviously, Jesus is uh, referring to eternal judgment there. There's a condition upon which we experience his eternal forgiveness. We must forgive everyone who has wronged us from our heart, meaning it must be true and sincere, genuine and complete. And, and this has already been touched on by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the citizens of his kingdom are to pray like this and forgive us our debts. Oh, there's more. As we forgive our debtors as we forgive. And those in the kingdom are to forgive others with the understanding that if you forgive men their trespasses, your father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I, I can't say it any other way, right? Yeah. When we forgive other people, you know, we are really only extending a fraction of forgiveness that God has extended to us. And so, if we refuse to extend that fraction of forgiveness to others, God will withhold all from us. We must forgive if we are to be forgiven. But, but Pastor Ben, you don't know what's happened to me, how I've been hurt. Well, that may be true. I don't. But I do know this. You and I have deeply offended an infinitely holy God. And in order for Christ to forgive us, he offered himself up to be tortured, humiliated, and murdered for the sins that we committed against him. And he did it so that he could forgive us and so that we could be reconciled to him. Well, that changes everything. Nobody has been wronged more deeply than Christ. And then he took our sin upon him. And then he was punished for what we did to him. And he did all of that so that he could wash us and forgive us and make a way for us to be reconciled. Whatever you have endured is a fraction of what he has endured. And he went out of his way to recover those who injured him. Even while they were torturing him, crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive. They know not what they do. I've been in ministry long enough and I've been around long enough to know that there are a number of people who would like me to explain this in a way that would soften what they believe is too harsh. They want me to say that Jesus is using hyperbole. They want me, for whatever reason, to diminish the force of this to a degree that is manageable or what they believe is reasonable. I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I, I won't do that. You know, Jesus is not using hyperbole. This is how the kingdom of heaven operates. This is how the citizens of, of his kingdom, this is, this is how they live. Uh, if it's not, then the illustration is meaningless. The illustration is a joke. You understand? It's, it's real. I can't alter the plain reading of what Jesus has said. You know, we, we expect God through our faith and repentance to forgive all that we have done against him, but he's not a, allowed to expect us to forgive those who have offended or hurt us. It's a really strange thing to me. It's really strange. You know, when I was in the process of coming to faith, um, you know, the Spirit was working in my life, bringing conviction of sin and convincing me of truth. The, the issue of my father uh, and, and you know, you, you, we, love doesn't keep record of wrong, but I do, trust me. But the issue of the forgiveness of my father came to the forefront at my conversion. Do you know what I'm saying? I had a lot to hold against my father. Not so much what he had done to me. There was, but 
mostly what he'd done to my family. But it was a contingency, and that contingency was real at my conversion before I even knew what the Scripture said. It's real. So real quick, what does it mean to forgive? I want to talk about what it does not mean first, because as I've counseled people over the years and interacted with them over this whole subject, uh, a lot of interesting things go through people's minds, and I think it's worth addressing. Does it mean that what was done to us is now okay or less of an offense if forgive? No, it was sin. It maybe even was wicked, okay? Does it mean that what was done was corrected by me forgiving them? Well, in, in me, but not with them. The correction of it is between them and God. He will either correct it through washing them with the blood of Christ and the sanctification of his spirit by way of their repentance, or he will correct it in eternal judgment. If we forgive someone, does it remove God's judgment from them? No, they're always accountable to him. Realize that when, when, when David murdered Uriah and, and committed adultery, well, first fornication, and then adultery with uh, Bathsheba, you know, it was a year before he repented, nearly. But then in the Psalms, when he's talking about it, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Yeah, we have personal sin. We sin against people, but ultimately, all sin is against God. He's the gatekeeper of all of it. So if you forgive someone for hurting you and they do not repent under the blood of Christ, they will face God's judgment for what they did. Okay? If you forgive someone, it doesn't diminish what happened to you. It doesn't make it in It doesn't. So what does forgiveness mean? You know, the word simply means to, to send away or to take out of the way. It, it, it means to remove what is held against someone. It, it, the language is in Romans 4, 8, where it says he was not imputing our sins against us. It means that God was, was not holding our sins against us because he had forgiven us. He'd removed it. And so for us, we take out of the way the thing that we were holding against that person. When we are unforgiving, we're holding that person's offense against them. We're imputing it to them and somehow holding it against them. I don't know what we think we accomplish by not forgiving, punishing them by not forgiving them, and, and they don't care. So why would you do that? What we're doing is we're acting as judge, jury, and executioner, or at least we wish we could be all of that, and we hold someone's sins against them. But we're playing God. But when we forgive, we're taking what it is we were holding against someone, and we're putting it into the hands of the one who can judge justly and thoroughly. It's already in his hands no matter what we do with it. But through forgiveness, we're trusting him with it. We're trusting him to do what is right. And that's what he always does. He, he can do no other. He can do no other. He, he shed his own blood both to be penalized for our sins and to be reconciled to the sinner. Because this whole issue belongs to him. I think one of the most dangerous things for a believer is to fiddle with unforgiveness. You know, what, what is it that you're most scared of? I mean, if I, if I flicked a deadly spider out in the audience, who would scream the loudest? <laughs> that was fast. Or I thought it was a tick. She's so scared of ticks that I wouldn't even prank her with ticks. how bad it is. But for Devin, it would be getting unforgiveness out of your hands as fast as a tick. Or a, a, who, who, for snakes, who's that? Okay. And stay away from my kids because... But when it comes to unforgiveness, it should be something that we're just batting away from, trying to smack off of us, like standing on the nest of those burrowing yellow jackets, and they just come out. <laughs> don't, don't mess with it. You do not risk your eternal well-being. Trust him with the sins of others. 
and be at peace, be at peace. So um, I know that there are many people in the church that struggle because of things that have happened, what parents have done to them, what kids have done to parents, what friends, spouses, all of that. I know that it hurts. I've been hurt. And I've probably, not probably, I've hurt people. But uh, it's, it's time. It's time to be at peace. It's time to obey Christ and hand it over and let him tend to this matter. And he, he will. He's faithful. He will not rest until he has. And so if, if you need prayer this morning, if you need counsel, um, I would love to minister to you with, with prayer. Uh, so would my elders. And um, so, yeah. So why don't you stand up and we'll pray. I think that what needs to be said from the text has been said. Lord Jesus, um, all that you've said in this chapter is, is very hard. And even the, the apostles at one time said, this is a hard saying. And you essentially said, this is the way it is. Would you also like to go away? It cannot be changed. It just is what it is. And Lord, you've, you've called us to have your heart. to be, And there is no danger in that. So Lord, convict us, soften us in regard to the issue of forgiveness. Help us to be liberated. Help us to experience peace. But most of all, Lord, help us to trust you with all of these matters. Lord, we, we love you and we thank you. Amen.